Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Ahir Shah is a British comedian who was nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2017 and 2018. He has turned his 2019 touring show, Dots, into his first proper televised comedy special, which debuted on HBO Max in 2021. Shah sat down with me over Zoom, not once, but twice, as we had far-ranging discussions about comedy, religion, the politics of satire on British television, courtesy of Nish Kumar's Late Night Mash, and how Shah feels about having an amplified voice in this time of great uncertainty. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So Ahir, uh, Ahir Shah, uh, last things first, uh, congratulations on Dots. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a great special. Um, You know, pandemic notwithstanding, why did it take you so long to film a special in the first place? (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, that is, uh, I mean, that, that's a question best answered by others, right? I mean, like, uh, potentially I was just awful beforehand, <laughs> and uh, this is the first thing of any uh, decency that I've um, made. No, we did, uh, for, I, I believe, reasons that uh, one can't go into publicly, we did uh, attempt to make the preceding show, Duffer, uh, into into a special, but there were certain um, sort of copyrighty issues uh, because I used a lot of lyrics from Bohemian Rhapsody in it. Uh, oh. And that is apparently something you're not allowed to do, <laughs> which at the time I didn't know. Um, and so this time I stayed very clear of Queen uh, and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, and uh, I crossed my fingers and it seems as though that sort of did the trick. So that was why Duffer, what about Control? Because both Duffer and Control were were finalists for the best show at Edinburgh. Yeah. Well, I think Control was definitely, like, very much a show of its time. Um, so that was basically, you know, it was, the, it was the 2017 show that I did in Edinburgh, and it was very much the right, we are now living in the world of Brexit and Trump, and these things are still pretty raw. Um, and so that one... Uh, you know, I was I was I was very proud of it at the time uh, and whatnot. Um, but I don't know how well it would stand up now that we live in a world. Well, of course, Brexit is still an ongoing <laughs> concern, uh, as everyone in this country is painfully aware of whenever they attempt to go to a shop. But um, mercifully, uh, from my perspective, for the time being, uh, you you've seen off. Uh, you've for at least four years, you've seen off uh, the awful fascist. Well, you know, being too topical doesn't stop any of the American comedians from putting out specials that that become outdated within a year. Is that is that something that's different? <laughs> is that something that, well, that's, that's why I think I must be more American. Is that something? Well, is that something that's different about the comedy culture in America versus the comedy culture in the UK? 
And that's why you yeah, don't see as I many think, specials come out? I think that there's probably some truth in that. Uh, because also, if you think about it, like, we, we live in just geographically so much denser a country that if you like a particular comedian or whatnot and you want to see them, that year you will be able to do that because they're going to come to, at the very least, somewhere that might be, let's say, 20 miles away from where you live uh, or what have you. Um, and obviously you could be extraordinarily rural and that doesn't apply, but for the most part, uh, right? Whereas I guess in the US, like I've I've not... I've, I've not taught around the US, but from American stand-up friends, uh, I gather so much of it is just sort of going around certain large cities in certain states, and you may find that, all right, if I live in, you know, the third largest city in Kansas, and I particularly enjoy this guy, well, maybe I'll be able to see him at some point in the next five years, um, but... Aside from that, uh, you'd have to put out recordings. But the question that it made me wonder is why comedians, and I guess this might be more of an American thing than a British thing, why American comedians feel like they have to put everything on tape, right? They can't, right. Just, they can't just do the shows and have the shows be this, this moment in time that you experience with the audience, but you have, yeah. to, you have to get everything on, on tape. And I realize the irony that I'm forcing you to put this on, on tape. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I think that uh, a big part of it is going to be the geography. Another part of it is just, as you say, like there is this cultural background of that's something that happens uh, in the United States in in much the same way as our television schedules are absolutely jam packed with panel shows. And we don't really do late night shows. Um, Whereas with you guys, it's the other way around. Um, but also, I think that the the culture around stand-up in the UK is so heavily dominated by the existence of the Edinburgh Festival, um, which means that your year really is leading up to, or for, for a lot of people, there are plenty of comics who don't do it, but um, for me, certainly, it feels like your year is leading up to this event where you'll put this live show on for a month and then you'll tour that and then you're perfectly happy sort of burning that material afterwards. So personally you'll have, you know, like I've got audio recordings of all my old shows and everything because it's a nice thing to have. Um, but one doesn't feel like there's anything necessarily weird with, yeah, of course I spent a year doing that and now I'll never do any of it again. That just seems pretty normal. Right. Maybe it shouldn't. I don't know. Well, I, I feel like it's 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 not just a cultural change slash difference, but it's also due to the changes in technology. It's so much easier to mm. make a special. It's so much easier to set up, to have the camera equipment, set it up, film it, even put it on YouTube if you don't sell it to a streaming platform. Yeah, absolutely. Like, just even, even the fact of... Um you know, being able to do this one and, you know, I'd, I'd be sitting in the edit suite and looking through, you know, I went in a few times just to see how it was all going, uh, partly because I had to and partly just because of personal interest. Um, and then clearly it's all done and then you sort of push a button and uh, this, you know, very meaty file that even 15 years ago would have probably taken a couple of hours to wing off. is just like, boop. All right, it's in America now. Uh, it's done. 
<laughs> to a certain extent, it's quite anticlimactic, you know? You you want the, the big sort of silver discus reel or something. That would be nice. Right. I mean, we call it specials for a reason. It should be special. Mm. What, you mentioned, you know, everybody preparing for and in your career revolving around Edinburgh. Were you aware of Edinburgh even when you were 15, just starting out? Uh not not particularly um just because it's not the sort of thing that my family ever would have gone to uh or anything like that and i think like yeah it's i have family who worked in the arts my friends were all children uh, and uh, also didn't have families who uh worked in the arts and it would have fundamentally just been too expensive for us to go uh for a holiday up to the fringe and see a bunch of shows so it was something that I learned about when uh, when I was in my mid-teens and started learning about comedy. Uh, but then very, free, very, very quickly, I realized that that was the thing, you know, like that, that was the that was the that was the mecca uh, for, for this industry. You know, I, we mentioned how Dots is your first proper special on on film. But you did you did have a TV credit really early with so you think you're funny. Oh yeah, well that's uh, that it wasn't televised, uh, but that was uh, yeah, it's the sort of the stand up competition that all new acts uh, in the UK end up doing, and the final was in Edinburgh, and I was dreadful because I was far too nervous uh, and just tried to get through everything as quickly as possible and didn't give it any time and it didn't work. Uh, as a consequence, but you know, in the in the long run, it's it's absolutely fine and uh, a learning experience like any other. Well, what for for me as an American in my my audience, you know, we we have we have tele- well, I I just presumed it was televised because that's what we do in America, right? Yeah. We have we had Last Comic Standing, which some UK uh, acts participated yeah, in over yeah. the years. Uh, we have America's Got Talent, which yeah. you know Simon Cowell brought over. Um, so what, yeah, so there are definitely, what, what, what is the place for, so you think you're funny? Like how, what, how does that exist in the UK? So, so there are definitely things like that. I mean, you know, we've, we've got Britain's got talent as it were, and many comedians have, have sort of done that, but that's more of a, like, you tend to, you tend to get asked to go on that. Um, mm-hmm. right. They'll spot you and you're, you know, you're pretty new, but you've done a little bit. Um, but you haven't really got any telly credits and they'll say, oh, come and do this. And then you've got to work out for yourself, whether it's because they want to laugh at you or with you. Um, but so something like, so you think you're funny. And I think, again, this is just intimately tied to the geography of the place. Uh, you know, it's, it's much more of an ask. I, I suppose the equivalent would be, so we have, you know, the, the heats for these sorts of competitions are done in cities all around the UK uh, and then the final will be in Edinburgh. And that is obviously much less of an ask than it is to say you had a stand-up heat in every state capital in the US. A, if that's Texas and you're thousands of miles away, that creates its own difficulties. And if you're like, and the final's going to be in New York and make your own way. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a that's a that's a fairly large ask, um, 
for someone who, you know, like obviously at the at the beginning of one's uh, attempts to do stand up isn't exactly going to be flush with the the sort of thing to be able to hop on a plane willy nilly. No, that's <laughs> that reminds me. That's just the kind of thing that that's almost expected in North America. <laughs> I mean, it's but even even to this day. I mean, not to this day because in 2021, uh, just for laughs, Montreal was mostly over Zoom um, or virtual. I don't know what platform they used, but in the past, the ask would be for the new faces to make their own way to Montreal, even though yeah. it was the biggest thing, <laughs> like the keystone of their young career, getting new faces. But then you have to make your own way to do it. Yeah. No, I, I find the the sort of economics of it uh, in America. I, I mean, I suppose it seems like what a lot of America seems like as an outsider, um, which is that either you're it's scraps or you're a millionaire, <laughs> uh, whereas here feels considerably more egalitarian uh, than that. Uh, but like, I remember... One evening, uh, so my sister used to live in New York for work, and so I went to visit her a couple of times. And one evening, I was going around with my friend, the American comedian Ari Shafir, and I was just following him to like clubs and like seeing him do that. And you know, the 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 amount that you would be being paid for your twenty minutes or what have you was an absolute pittance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you figure out that he's getting taxis all around the place and it's like just a sort of done thing that you know unless you it's like no no the, the money comes from television and then you do that but th- th- there's no there's no money in the live game and it makes you think how difficult it must be for someone starting out a you've got to live in new york not the cheapest place to live, or you know taking new york as an example uh but then you know to be going out on a Saturday night and doing five, six spots. Uh, and even when you're a sort of well-known comic, still just get essentially beer money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a newbie, must be extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's something that I, I think every generation of, of comedians eventually talks about trying to start a union or some sort of guild and <laughs> and then it quickly falls apart because stand-up comedians are such independent yeah <laughs> lone, uh, lone wolves that they're like i don't want to <laughs> do what all these people are doing i remember uh years ago uh my friend daniel kitson had a line about uh British comedians trying to form a union and he's like I don't think it's going to work we're all a bit too self-involved for that you just have a bunch of people going what do we want we <laughs> <laughs> exactly how 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 you know you, you said your your experience was so you think you can funny like didn't pan out quite the way you, you might have hoped mm. did that did that change since that was still and how old were you when you did that 17 okay so you're still so young how did that shape your ambitions or your career goals? Did it? I don't, well, I think that at this point, it was still very much a sort of thing that I just like regarded as a bit of an odd hobby. And so I was like, oh, I get, to, I'll, I'll go on a trip to Edinburgh. That'll be, that'll be fun. Um, whereas, you know, uh, and 
I guess because, you know, you're still at school and that was before I'd even sort of applied to university or anything, but then I was at university for three years uh, after that. And it was only really when I graduated that I was like, okay, no, I, I think I will try and make a, make a stab at this. Um, does it, but that, that was never really, you know, for, for, for better and worse. And I think largely for better um, because it never sort of affected uh, you know, like if, if, if something, if you're zero, zeroed in on the fact that, no, this is going to be my career. So every part, uh, like it becomes a lot harder to fail. Whereas like, you know, like I played cricket uh, for the school team. And if I, you know, had a bad innings or I dropped a catch or what have you, you'd be like, oh, that sucks on the day. But ultimately, well, it's not, whereas you know, if I if I were a professional cricketer and did the same, or wanted to be a professional cricketer and did the same, I could be like, oh gosh, that could be my entire livelihood uh, out of the out of the thing. So the the stakes were sort of happily lower. And that's even considering that you went to Cambridge and hmm. which has the footlights and the footlights yes. themselves have a storied tradition. Yeah, for sure. But even when when I was at university, sort of. I sort of toyed with just staying in academia and uh, was was quite interested in the possibility of doing that uh, and applied to a master's program at Oxford and was consummately rejected because Ooh. my entire personal statement was basically just the words, please don't send me into the real world yet. <laughs> I'm not ready. Like, uh... And so they, they were they were quite right in their, in their assessment. <laughs> Turns out they're quite clever there. Uh, awful thing to have to admit. Uh, but yeah, I, I, so I was like, oh, this is just you know, it's it's supposed to be like the place that you go to work out what you're interested in, and why not why not try as many things as possible. One of the things you've you've been not trying but doing is writing writing for and sometimes appearing with. Um... The Mash Report, Late Night Mash. Yes, yes. Tell me, tell me about that show's place in the in the infrastructure or the the kind of um, yeah. What, what, what's I its place that... in society over there? <laughs> it's, uh... Does it have a role, or is it just kind of a, a hobby? <laughs> no, I, I think that um, I think that it does because I think that. Uh, Nish Kumar, who is the sort of host and driving force uh, on on the show, uh, does have, like both sees himself as having and does have a sort of function as a social commentator and whatnot in in the UK now, um, which I think he's just fantastic at doing and being. Uh, and a lot of the stuff for for many many years, we'd tried to recreate uh some american sense of a late night show uh that's more topical and whatnot uh and loads of things were tried over many years and all of which failed um basically and uh you know to, to the extent that it was so outside of the norm of what could succeed over here that John Oliver had to come to you guys in order to do it. And, you know, is uh, uh, what's very much our loss is very much your gain because by God, like it would be amazing to have him uh, do, do last week tonight on uh, British television. Um, but it, it was just thought that, well, that's a thing that you can't do. Um, and then 
MASH sort of, I think, became the first thing that actually did work, that, that people sort of accepted and ended up uh, having now run for quite a few series. Um, and largely, I think, uh, due to Nish's, Nish's sort of ability and personality. What, what, do you, what do you try to pitch for the show? Are there certain things that you try to, <laughs> to get on over and over again? Or? Uh, no, I, I think that my, my role in the writer's room is very much, as someone who's still sort of on the center-left of the British uh, political spectrum, which I think that by American terms probably makes me a full communist, uh, I think that... Uh, I think that sort of... I, I, I'm sort of boring, boring center ground uh, guy, and so in that room, my my role is largely let's uh, let's uh, let's wheel this in like a little bit, guys, because uh, I th- I think that you might be being slightly uh, unfair on that, or um, <laughs> but I think that that's the. Wait, do you do you, the, do you find yourself do you find yourself defending Boris? <laughs> I don't, well, the last uh, the last piece that I did on it, uh, which went out on Thursday night. Uh, was sort of semi defending the Conservative Party's record on the environment, uh, and it, it was really funny to do it in front of it because, like, it's just it's so difficult for him to accept. Like, and you know, on nine things out of ten, ninety nine things out of a hundred, I'm on the same page as him with regard to the Conservative Party. But I was like. Look, we can't act like they're doing nothing about climate change because actually by global standards, uh, by, the, by the standards of a global developed country, it's actually very odd that we have a right wing party of government who take this seriously. Um, and we should, we should be grateful for that because if you just like slag them off about absolutely everything, then you're going to make it a culture war issue like it is um, for you guys. Mm. And then that's no one can afford that. <laughs> that's true. So thank you. Thank you for your, thank you for your service on Lena and Matt. Um, but that brings me to like something you said in Dots. You talked about how you recognize through your shows in Edinburgh, there's a point where you talk about your management or your representation informing you that you now have this amplified voice, right? Mm. And you're asked to speak on behalf of your race or your religion or your ethnicity. Yeah. How? Which? Yeah. Oh, go sorry. ahead. Get, finish, finish your question. I'm sorry. Oh I'm no, sorry. you are you are you already knew what the, the question. <laughs> like, uh, uh, right. uh, yeah, I, I think that that is the case, and to a certain extent, it is obviously frustrating because you would like for for most of the time to be you know Irish human being, not Irish comma capital letters brown man, um, everything. But on, on the other hand, I suppose that one, one does need to acknowledge that it, it is a privilege to have an amplified voice, whoever you are. Uh, and then hopefully if that can be used in such a way that shows people or that like portrays my community and everything as the three-dimensional and rounded characters that we actually are, because that's how all human beings work. Uh, then that's not necessarily any bad thing. So it's a yes. It's certainly it's it's a it's a privilege, just an annoying one. <laughs> well, I mean, you you know, you do try to put uh, Hinduism into a little bit of of perspective in mm. dots. I, I feel like uh, for for those of you listening now, um, 
uh, here and I did speak earlier in the week and it, it went completely sideways. And I don't know. I, I wouldn't blame Hinduism for it. I might blame. Mercury. <laughs> I, 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 I might blame Mercury being in retrograde, yes. which, which is a completely different way to look at things. I, th- I think that it would be really fascinating for us both to blame Hinduism for that. Like, it's like, I think, look, we had a sideways conversation, and when you think about it, I think we can all agree it was Ganesh. It was, it was Ganesh's <laughs> fault, so it's fine. We'll pull out behind us. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but that, that but yes, I, I do. I do like to uh, sort of discuss that because I think that it's. Like, while, you know, I, I think that there's still a pretty poor understanding of Islam in the West, but uh, Islam is something that people, I, I think just because it's more akin to Christianity mm-hmm. uh, is something that, you know, as a similar Abrahamic monotheism, it's sort of more relatable and understandable uh, in the Western Christian uh, consciousness. Uh, whereas Hinduism still sort of carries this, sort of thing of the under and it's not unknown in a way that it's like feared or anything like that but it's just it's just the unknown of a sort of oh i don't really know how that really works which is of course absolutely fine it's mm. and like in many ways it's sort of quite nice when if someone's just like oh i don't really know anything about that and you're like oh cool all right we'll learn together like uh my, my girlfriend is irish i am shamefully ignorant about irish history and so uh, and she's very patient with me whenever i'm just like look um Consider that I'm an idiot. Uh, please tell me uh, what these things that I should clearly already know, but I don't, and uh, whatnot. So I think that that's a that's a useful thing to be able to do. I just I just hope that that Hinduism and uh, I just hope that Hinduism is at least as accepted and as known as astrology. <laughs> Yeah, so people, if you, like I mentioned, Mercury retrograde, and everybody knows what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> but if you say chakras, people go what? Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, there is, of course, an extraordinarily uh, storied astrological history uh, in Hinduism, uh, to the extent that um, the, the first hour-long stand-up show I did was called Astrology because it was based on uh, when. I was born like a like a great many uh, Indian children. Um, there was something called a, a Janmaksha uh, made for me. It's sort of what's written at birth, and this is sort of you you consult an astrologer to look at the star chart at the specific time of this child's birth, and they basically just write a potted biography of how your life's going to go. And it's actually really fun. It's like some some of it was pretty bang on, but. Uh, some of it, apparently I'm going to get divorced twice. I haven't got around to that yet, but who knows? <laughs> There's still time. There's still time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't be um, like this. Yeah. And, you know, uh, something that has become more commonplace or more acceptable, uh, at least in terms of show business is concerned, is is people talking about uh, depression and mental illness mm. and and uh, anti, you know, taking antidepressants. You know, there's there's more and more comedians here in America talking about it. You certainly mention it in dots. So I wonder what your current perspective is on laughter being the best medicine versus medicine <laughs> being the best medicine. I mean, 
It's uh, well, we'll put it this way. Uh, I wasn't extraordinarily excited about receiving two doses of laughter to protect me from the coronavirus, whereas uh, I am very happy to have received two doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And I was still uh, a shame that your country uh, does not does not acknowledge its wonderful effects. Uh, so this is, a, this is a great British success story, and uh, we've got too few of those these days. So I, I, I want to I want to big this uh, big up Oxford AstraZeneca to the uh, to the American listeners, um, I think that certainly it's it's sort of encouraging that um, people are talking about these sorts of issues on stage. I would say that, like fundamentally, as with anything, like the point is to be funny, uh, and I'm not interested in if 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 someone's I don't know like I've I've heard comedians tell extraordinary like hilarious stories about suicide attempts that have been like rolling on the floor and everything but like if they did it without jokes I'd just be like mate this, well, you, you're right like this problem, this isn't the forum uh, for that sort of thing um, what, what it is is the forum to tell jokes in and the beauty of it is that you have total freedom as to what they are right the only obligation is to be funny and if you can do that, I, whatever you're being funny about, uh, I just want to see you explore uh, whatever it is that you want to explore. And if you're making me laugh, then I am extremely interested in your explorations. And if that's mental illness or faith or love or family, or if you just want to do a bunch of one-liners, I am equally happy uh, with all of those because I enjoy laughing. <laughs> Even in a pandemic. Which is killing hey, especially in a pandemic, especially um, in a pandemic. So thank you for reminding us that we're still in the pandemic. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was watching the ten o'clock news uh, the other day, and um, they kept using the phrase like "during the pandemic" or "now after the pandemic" and everything. And then at the end of the at the end of the thing, they were like, "And uh, just today's latest COVID figures: uh, forty-five thousand new infections and everything." What? <laughs> It's like, and do you know what? Like, look, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and act like I haven't been sort of living my life pretty much as normal beyond wearing a mask when I'm in certain indoor settings and what have you. But let's not say after the pandemic, if there's still forty five thousand people a day catching this thing. Yes, and yes, and I'm grateful that we can both laugh about it. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's because we're both involved in comedy that. It's easier yeah. for us to laugh at the madness that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, well, I know. Got to, I mean, it it, it 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 destroyed the comedy industry overnight. So if if you can't laugh, then you're going to be extremely upset. Right. Which I guess brings me to my last question, and that's, you know, the pandemic gave everybody, not just people in comedy, a chance to to take a time out and reflect. I mean, for comedians, it forced it forced you to take a time out from what you were doing yeah. and reflect. Uh, I know in a way dots, which you were hoping to film at the end of March, 2020, but ended yeah. up filming in 2021 already deals with the uncertainty of, of life. <laughs> but yeah. how, how did this, how did this time off, especially knowing you had a special, how did the time off impact what you think about how you want to move forward yeah um 
I think that it sort of gave me a greater sense of clarity of what I want, not necessarily professionally, because like the thing about the professionally is like, well, I can't do anything about that. Right. Like it's, uh, that was all like as an individual, we were all so clearly not the center of what was going on. uh, And our own, you know, it was extremely important that we did them in terms of the precautions that we took and whatnot. Uh, and hopefully it still continue to take in, in certain settings where, where it's appropriate. Um, but, you know, so I got a lot more comfortable being completely insignificant. Uh, and I think that that gave me uh, a bit more of a sense of, right, what, what actually do you consider to be important and what actually uh, do you want from life? Uh, because before that, I tied my identity so heavily to my profession. Uh, and it was a very rude awakening of like, perhaps it's not wise to do that. Uh, because it turns out that uh, through the whims of the gods, your profession can evaporate uh, and everything. Uh, and beyond that, I was just like, yeah, I, I think that. One thing, and I I won't say during the pandemic or anything, but one thing that is relatively easy to forget now, and I think just because we have to forget, uh, because otherwise how will we live, uh, was just how uh, like apocalyptically frightening it was uh, right at the beginning, particularly. Uh, it's obviously still like a, a frightening thing, but that that sense of at the beginning, you know, like my entire th- thought process was you know, devoted to, like, I hope that these people who I love who are vulnerable to this thing don't die, Um, right? And just as everything was becoming slightly more manageable in the UK and the vaccine rollout and everything was going very well, uh, that's when it really struck India. Uh, And so I had, you know, on the one hand, this sense of optimism for what was going on here, but also that fear coming back, um, because, so, like, my dad's entire side of the family, basically, are over there. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> well, Ahir Shah, thank you for considering this podcast important enough to do. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure, man. And I look forward to speaking with you again after the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.